Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, the new leader-elect for the Ontario New Democrats, Merritt Stiles, answers some questions about taking the reins with a Tory majority. We'll hear from Scott Maxwell, the Executive Director of Wounded Warriors, about the repeated suggestions from Veterans Affairs Service Advisors about medical assistance in dying. And Canada is getting a pro-women's soccer league slated for 2025, but will it go the way of the Canadian Women's Hockey League? We'll ask Dr. Ann Pegararo, co-director of the National Research Network on Gender Equity in Sport. I'm Shona Thompson, and the Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario NDP has a new leader, and by acclamation, Merritt Stiles has been an MPP since 2018, representing the downtown Toronto riding of Davenport. The party still has to officially confirm it. That is set to happen on March the 4th. She takes over the leadership with a majority government for Doug Ford, and during some very challenging economic times, as well as there being a crisis in Ontario hospitals, and what seems to be an era for the provincial government testing its boundaries. She's joining us now. Good morning, and thank you so much for your time. It's great to be here. We're speaking, actually, before a news conference that's planned for uh, this morning by the Ford government. Word is that it's going to be about the 413 highway. I wanted your thoughts on that Mm -hmm. highway and the Bradford Bypass. Well, you know, I mean, obviously, our our, uh, our caucus and our party have been opposed to those uh, developments. We are very deeply concerned about this government's uh, approach to uh, preserving or not preserving uh, farmland and 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 important ecosystems. And we're seeing this again. You know, this government uh, did not run on uh, paving over the green belt or you know encouraging urban sprawl, but but in fact that's what they're they're doing right now. And I've heard from so many Ontarians over the last few months about how concerned they are, and I really share those concerns and continue to oppose those changes at Queens Park. Uh, one of the things that I think really came to the fore and uh, was very interesting in Auditor General Bonnie Lissick's report. The Ford government not only ignored their own internal expert advice when making key decisions about building or expanding highways in the province, they actually elevated these above others that had already had priority in funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, I mean, and we see this with this government at every turn, right? It, it, it's not like they're, ta- they're not taking good advice. They're not taking the best advice. They're not really listening to anyone. At the end of the day, who they seem to be listening to is a few people who tend, who, who will actually benefit. Uh, and you see this again with the green belt. Uh, they are going to, uh, to sell off really important farmland, uh, really important, um, ecosystems, uh, all to benefit a very few already very wealthy developers. So I've asked for the Auditor General, by the way, to also investigate uh, that deal, uh, who's standing to benefit um, from the sell-off of the green belt, uh, because we think that where there's smoke, there's probably fire. Well, I spoke yesterday with Green Party leader Mike Schreiner about the Green Belt plan, and his party mm. is calling for the Integrity Commissioner to investigate all of this. I mean, by developers buying up lands that at the time couldn't be developed, now they can. I know your party mm-hmm. has called for the Auditor General to investigate as well. Where is that right now? Yeah, so we've asked uh, the Auditor General to investigate. We've also asked her to pass 
um, anything she finds, if there is any impropriety, that that be passed, passed along to the right authorities. Um, I, I'm glad that the integrity commissioner has also been asked to look into it. Uh, again, you know, when you look at who benefits, this government promised as, as recently as during the last provincial election that they were not going to touch the green belt. Now they're going to be paving over wetlands, selling off farmland, prime farmland that's supposed to feed future generations. Um, somebody is benefiting. We know that already uh, in the months before they they changed tack, uh, that there were some peeps, some some sales of those lands taking place. So somebody is benefiting from this. It is not Ontarians. It is not. Uh, this is not about housing. This will probably not build a single unit of affordable housing. Uh, so we want to understand a little better um, where uh, who's making a profit off of this. And why? And I think, as you said, you know, there is uh, there have been some serious uh, questions raised. And so we're hoping the Auditor General will investigate. This is the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Shona Thompson filling in for Bill. And we're speaking with Ontario NDP leader Marit Stiles. Uh, one of the reasons why there's a majority at a government at Queen's Park right now is because of the very low voter turnout in the last provincial election. Mm. What is the NDP going to do going forward to change that? Yeah, that was the thing that I think concerned me the most. And I know many Ontarians coming out of the last provincial election, that low, really historic low voter turnout. And I, I've been asking Ontarians as I go around the province, you know, why was that? And my sense is that it's because, you know, liberal and conservative governments over and over for many generations, many years have been telling people this is as good as it gets, that, that having those 10 to 20 hour waits in emergency rooms, that's just how it's going to be. Um, that having classrooms that are packed with 40 kids, that's as good as it gets. But this is not normal. This is not the Ontario that I moved to when I moved here from Newfoundland 30 years ago to go to school and then and then stay for jobs and opportunities. Uh, this is not the province that I think we all signed up for. And, and so what I'm hoping we can do is actually inspire people to believe that uh, they can expect more from their provincial politicians, uh, from their government, right? We should aspire to more. This is not as good as it gets. We can address these issues if you have a government who's willing to roll up their sleeves and get the work done. Well, you mentioned the long waits in ERs, and we have had a lot of uh, reporting Mm. on the fact that the children's hospitals right across Ontario um, are in a crisis mode. Now, the Ford government has announced some spending that may eventually help to alleviate some of that, but the crisis is now. What would you want to see the Ford government do now to alleviate the problems that parents are experiencing with their kids? Well, you know, I I really think it is shameful. I mean, we've got uh, the Children's Hospital in Ottawa now calling in the Red Cross, and the government said, Doug Ford said the other day, oh, it's good to see them thinking outside the box. Uh, You know, this is a crisis, and it's a crisis of this government's making. Uh, They could have, would have, should have done better, and they didn't. And, And here we are today. And I think that, you know, they're they're not approaching it with the urgency that they should. Uh, this is a crisis. It's not something that you're going to solve by just throwing, you know, a few little tiny solutions and, and covering it up with Band-Aids. We need a serious uh, crisis kind of response here. Um, but I can tell you one thing I think they should do right away. Uh, the government uh, just saw their awful Bill 124 that froze all those healthcare workers' wages. They just saw that overturned by the courts, and now they're going to appeal that decision. That sends a terrible message to healthcare workers. Healthcare workers, nurses in this province, are leaving the healthcare system in droves because they feel disrespected, because they can't make a living. 
And this government is telling them they're going to keep fighting that. That's that's disrespectful. And I think they could start by just saying, you know what, we made a mistake and we're going to uh, we're going to start to properly compensate those workers. That's the only way we're going to deal with this. This healthcare crisis is largely a staffing crisis. Uh, Ms. Stiles, I know that there have been a number of the hospital unions that have been vocal about their fear and concern that uh, this situation in the children's hospitals may be used mm. as a wedge in order to introduce two-tier health care um, in this province. I'm wondering if that's your concern as well. Absolutely. And, you know, we're seeing the government right now starting to introduce small changes, but they're not, they're, they're very significant. They're starting to talk about moving more services out into private for profit clinics. Um, they're also, let's not forget, I mean, a lot of this uh, is, is, is about putting some money into like nursing agencies, private nursing agencies to, to provide the same nurses uh, into our system. That means that private, that public healthcare dollars are being diverted out of our hospitals and into administration costs of private companies. Uh, that is not an efficient or effective way to run a public health care system. So I'm really concerned that that's what this is about. And, you know, some have said that they think this government is intentionally creating a crisis. I, I think that the effect of what's happening uh, in the crisis that we have right now means that the government is, you know, opening the door, trying to open the door to more privatization of health care. Um, and again, I want to say really clearly that we know that that is not an effective or efficient way to provide health care in any respect. And we're going to just see more health care dollars bleed into uh, shareholder po- pockets when it really should be going directly into our healthcare system. You've said that your leadership is going to usher in a new era for the NDP in Ontario. How so? Well, I think, you know, this is a party that's ready to win. Uh, we are going to, we've been working really hard uh, over the last few months as I was uh, in the midst of this leadership contest, uh, organizing across the province, showing people that there's a real alternative to Doug Ford's conservatives. And I want to say clearly, too, you know, we are building on the achievements of our of our past leader, Andrea Horvath, right? She, she built our party up to the place where we are now official opposition. We have a strong official opposition. We have a very diverse and extremely strong caucus. We have extraordinary MPPs who are leaders in their communities. Uh, and so we're going to build on those achievements uh, and we're going to take it to the next step. This leadership race was just the first step. The real race, the real contest is to is to convince Ontarians that we can we can do better, that we can expect better of our government and then to propose real solutions uh, that they can vote for uh, to turf Doug Ford and the Conservatives in the next election. Ms. Dallas, you're also coming into this leadership at a time when women in positions of power, particularly political leadership on any level, are being met with some measure of anger, nastiness, even threats. How can that be changed? Mm. Well, you know, it is, it's true, right? And, uh, and I see it every day and, and among, you know, my colleagues now uh, experience that. And certainly um, if you're a woman in politics, uh, you're, you're going to see a lot of that. If you're uh, a, a racialized woman, or uh, you're going to see you're going to see even more of that. Um, and I hope we can change the tone of politics. I really do. Um, you know, when I when I see the way that the government came after me yesterday, I expect that, right? I could stand up to the bullies. I'm not afraid of that. And I, to me, it just it just seems to me like uh, they're scared, and that's why they're doing that. Um, but I do hope that we can uh, we can find ways to prevent to present a little bit more of a, a positive approach to politics. 
Um, and and I, that's what I intend to do. But, you know, make no mistake, I, I'm not afraid to stand up to the bullies. Uh, I may be only five foot one and a half, but I but I can stand up to them and I and I intend to. Are you referring to the uh, tweet that came out from the uh, progressive conservative <laughs> press room? Uh, you know what? Again, like that. Yeah, sure. That was uh, it was entertaining. And I and I know I'm going to expect more about it. And you know what? To me, actually, to be honest, that that sends a signal to me that they're concerned that they are worried and that they're scared because they know that we can present people with a a fresh and progressive alternative. And, uh, and so they're worried and I don't blame them because a lot of people in this province are really unhappy right now. Uh, We see that I hear every day uh, people did not sign up for this and uh, they're looking for, for change and we're going to help make that happen. Uh, We have to let you go. I know you have uh, other obligations that you have to fulfill, but I appreciate you taking time to speak with us this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Ontario NDP leader Marit Stiles. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. When this story broke last week, it broke my heart. And then it made me really, really angry. It's made a lot of people angry. There's been another case of a wounded vet being offered the option of a medically assisted death by a Veterans Affairs Canada caseworker. Retired Corporal Christine Gauthier, who's also paraplegic, told the House Commons Standing Committee on Veterans Affairs that the topic of assisted dying was raised during her years-long fight for a home wheelchair lift. I have to crawl down the stairs on my, on my butt with the wheelchair in front of me to be able to access my, my house. If things are so hard at this point and... Uh, you just can't keep going on, and you know we can assist you with uh, aid to die. Well, it's not the first time this has happened. In fact, it's happened at least four times that we know of, perhaps even more. Joining us now is Scott Maxwell, Executive Director of Wounded Warriors of Canada. Good morning. Thank you for your service and for your time this morning. Well, thanks for having me on. I feel the same way. My reaction was exactly the same as yours. Um, You know, as I said in the intro, this is not the first time such a suggestion has been made. Once may be a mistake, but it happening repeatedly sounds more like a protocol. Certainly. I mean, we don't know if it was one case manager, two, three, four. I mean, this is what the investigation absolutely needs to, to bear out. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. One instance of this situation happening is one too many at any time in the country for this department that has that has no um, responsibility to be even discussing this topic with any veteran. VAC is there to assist and support our ill and injured veterans in their transition to civilian life to help them make successful and healthy transitions to civilian life. So this is just unconscionable. Well, how has this left vets feeling? Uh, Devastated, um, anxious, sad, angry, frustrated. Uh, We have had many veterans call us, our organization, as a service providing uh, organization to this population saying, can I go through you to, to, to access VAC and the services and benefits that I'm entitled to? I don't feel safe or comfortable having these conversations right now with the department, which is which is horrifying uh, to think that there's others that haven't contacted us that feel the same way and aren't accessing the benefits and services that they deserve and are entitled to is, is, is a horrible effect of this. And then of course, the, the effect it's had on, on the on the members, the veterans and their families who had this conversation brought to their attention by people that are supposed to be there to help them. You know, the prime minister says his government is, quote unquote, working to ensure that Veterans Affairs Canada never again offers medical assistance in dying to veterans. Shouldn't he just say stop? You don't yeah. do it right now. It, exactly. It should never. It's just exactly. Stop. 
One is too many. It should never happen. We're going to bring in every investigative tool, the RCMP, everybody responsible to set a precedent against this. I mean, we got to remember, there's just a month ago, we were talking about the fact that in Canada, there's 23,000 veterans awaiting disability claim adjudication, which means, of course, they have not received a disability benefit or award that they may or may not be entitled to as yet. Some waiting up to 43 weeks to even have it uh, reviewed and assessed. So against that backdrop, we know that those veterans in these situations often feel frustrated, hopeless, isolated, shameful as a burden to their family or to themselves or to their community or society. And now this is the time we'd even begin to have a conversation around medically assisted death. It, it's, it's just, it just needs to stop. Yeah, we've heard story after story and, and you just mentioned it takes about 43 weeks for somebody to get an assessment. Um, it, it, we've heard about how difficult it is for some vets to get compensation or appropriate medical help. It makes you wonder why anyone would take the risk and volunteer for service. Well, it doesn't help uh, as we, it doesn't help at all when all we're seeing is uh, the recruitment levels being as low as they are, the, how hard it is to just to get people to be interested, much less join the Canadian Forces against this backdrop and all these situations that continue to unfold. If, if, our, if we're not equipping our, our Canadian Forces members properly and professionally to do what they to do what they do as good as anybody in the world. And then uh, and then if we're not taking care of them, like I would say, you know, equally as important when they are in need of of the country's assistance after their service to Canada. Uh, it's a perfect storm for the situation affecting the Canadian forces right now. Uh, we're speaking with Wounded Warriors Canada Executive Director Scott Maxwell. In another case, uh, Global News has learned that uh, a VAC service agent brought up made unprompted in a conversation earlier this year with a combat vet who was discussing treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder and a traumatic brain injury. I, I just, I do not get why they just pop out with, well, you can always end your life. Well, exactly. And doesn't it beg the question, this particular testimony from that veteran at committee uh, where this was disclosed, that like, how are we not even, before we're even thinking or even that that topic would even, uh, could be even be possibly thought about, this is a veteran that can't get into her home safely because of the injury she sustained how is that not the topic of discussion how is that not that's what vac is there to do is to support that veteran to get her help and and ramps etc to get her into her home the benefits and awards that she's entitled to um instead all that just goes by the wayside she still hasn't had that rectified and now and then they just simply say we can easily and simply just offer you medically assisted death it's just wrong on all levels should never we shouldn't be having this conversation at all in this country um, when, in fact, we should be actually talking about how we can better assist every veteran and their family make healthy and successful transitions to civilian life. Well, yeah, Corporal, retired Corporal Christine Goche uh, received a spinal injury in service to this country. And, and all we have to do is give her a dignified way to get into her own home. Correct. Correct. And yet we're and yet that seems to be impossible. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. I don't know how long she's been. This is a situation that's been going on for. I, I'm not sure about the details on that end. It doesn't matter. It's a simple fix. This is again. This is what the Department of Veterans Affairs Canada is there to do: is to help those veterans in those situations as a result of injuries sustained in service. So, it's a no-brainer in terms of what they should be doing. But as we see from the data and the numbers and the amount of people that aren't receiving those disability benefits and awards, uh, it's not happening. 
that's where we should be resourcing and focusing our attention and investment dollars and hiring full-time people to uh, whatever, whatever, whatever we need to do to help make sure that we can bring these numbers down and get the veterans the help they deserve. And of course, just putting an end, investigating this to its fullest and making sure that MAID is never a, 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 tr a treatment modality brought up in a discussion with an ill and injured veteran of the Kane Forces. In, on Monday, I was in conversation with Dr. Sanu Gant, who is a professor of psychiatry at U of T. We were talking mm -hmm. about some suggestion that uh, may be expanded to the realm of mental health. But what he was saying was that we know so little about mental health and, and the fullness of treatment at this point that any discussion of an expansion of MAID into that realm has to be put off. I couldn't agree more with that uh, sentiment statement. Uh, we, we're, as a mental health service provider that that treats this popular and injured Canadian Forces members, veterans, first responders, and their families uh, with clinically facilitated group trauma counseling, we see every day the the transformational effects of treatment uh, and and how that how people can can recover and live healthy and well, having sustained and being diagnosed with an injury like PTSD. So. We, we need to be talking about how we can do more of that and properly resourcing that and helping them get timely access to culturally competent clinical care, mental health care in this country. That's to us is the solution that we need to be looking at, not bringing in um, further ways for a veteran in this case to end their life. Well, one of the quotes from you that I came across when I was researching the interview for Monday was mental health injuries can be terminal only if they are untreated unsupported and under-resourced. So you have somebody who has some sort of a, a mental health issue. Then you get a non-medical service advisor saying, well, hey, there's always made. What is that going to do to their mental health? Well, this is it, right? It's, it, it, um, talk about a setback. Talk about you know going back into all the situations that we're trying to get these members out of isolation shame anger frustration you know what have you the, the ripple effects of all of that is are pretty obvious so you know and, and as i say we know that 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 often the pathway the pathways that we've seen and researched on death deaths by suicide in this country often are come from those types of feelings and sentiments and marital breakdown and loss and all this stuff so the goal should be to get work back from those realities and as I say, you know, we can we can treat this if we support this and resource this and help the system do this better. You know, we we, we will be in a better position to not ever need to have this conversation again. Unfortunately, well, though, it's not happening. And, and just overall with uh, the government's oversight of Veterans Affairs Canada, I mean, fulfill the promise. We promise that if you are in service to this country and you get injured, that we will take care of you. And that's not happening. Yeah, and certainly by taking care of you is not offering you a way to end your life. Period. Full stop. There's a there's a multitude. This is a you know, billions of dollar department, federal department in Canada that has tons of capability to bring in you know the the most leading edge supports for people that are struggling all the way down yes to uh, helping someone get into their home with a ramp. There's there's tons of things that we should be doing and they could be doing and they should be doing and they're not. So. You know, it's it drive. It's very frustrating, as you can probably intimate from my voice. But when it comes to now, we're having a, a a conversation that we should not be having. This is all. This is an entirely new level for the the conversation around the care and treatment of of veterans in this country. Scott, do you know if any of the Veterans Affairs Service agents who have mentioned made have they been fired? 
Uh, I don't know. Uh, this is another question that you know. All we hear is they're they're investigating, they're looking into it. The per the the one individual that they they they've declared is was responsible for at least, if not one or all of these uh, situations, has been removed from that role. Removed to where? I have no idea. It doesn't never once have I heard that they're removed from the department, which of course they they should be. Um, but I think it begs a broader question to your earlier point about is this a policy? Is this uh, is other people having these same conversations uh, or not? We don't know, but you know we'll be working with uh, the organ VAC, the union, to ensure that mental health uh, case managers who are mainly civilians working with ill and injured veterans have proper training, a better understanding of the of, of uh, and and how to navigate these very complex and often difficult conversations. Well, and how about having some uh, former Canadian service personnel do some of those jobs because they would have a better understanding. This is it. And this is what we run into this all the time, be it with WSIB, be it with, um, you know, any case management from a, a benefit employer insurance company, what have you. You know, they're they're mainly civilians dealing with uniform um, service members and family members. And like that, you know, that usually doesn't work very well unless there's cultural competency, occupational awareness and training to support that. And that's something that we do as an organization for the healthcare community right large across the country. We do that for first first responder services and the employers and the organizations as a whole. And and we're looking to to bring this into obviously into VAC at this time. Absolutely. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for your time, and hopefully you'll keep us informed, and we'll try to stay on top of the story as well. I'm happy to join you anytime. Wonderful. Wounded Warriors Canada Executive Director Scott Maxwell. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I am so glad to see that this country is moving forwards with its first women's pro soccer league and about time too. And when you've got a combination like Christine Sinclair and Diana Matheson's, who are the driving forces behind it, a better pedigree I don't think you can find. With some of what we know so far, here is Global's Matt Carty. Former member of the Canadian women's national soccer team, Diana Matheson, is launching the league with her business partner under the banner Project 8 Sports. It'll be led by other former national team members such as Christine Sinclair and Stephanie LeBay. Sports management professor Ann Pegarero says you need this star power when going out and looking for sponsors. Proven star power, right? Both of them have succeeded at a high level and they're going to bring that to the business side of this as well. And she says it's a great time to launch something like this. Because men's sport has, while it's a large, large entity, it's plateaued in terms of its return on investment. The upside is going to come through women's professional sport. Now the hope is to change the soccer landscape in Canada so women can develop and play professionally here instead of going abroad. Matt Carty, Global News. And joining us now is Dr. Ann Pegararo, co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. Good morning, Ann. Great to talk to you and about something that is so positive. I know. It's a great uh, announcement and uh, it feels like a really early Christmas present. (laughs) It sure does. I know the idea is for eight teams, four in the East, four in the West, with at least one Canadian national team member associated with each of those teams. That sounds like a, a great way to get started on this and to create that instant interest in each of the markets. Yeah, I think it's going to capture uh, the audience across the country, right? We've got regional representation. We'll have uh, the ability to build rivalries. And I think uh, a lot of these teams are already in hotbeds for soccer in Canada. So I think it's a it's a good start. 
And, you know, uh, women's soccer, it makes me, it reminds me rather of what has happened in women's rowing over the years and women's hockey over the years, that you have really successful, high-quality women's teams, um, but they, they don't always get the same support from the federal government as men's teams do. And sometimes those men's teams, they're not doing as well as the women are. No, exactly. I think, uh, you know, again, we just we're we're in the middle of a World Cup where we're seeing the Canadian men uh, make it for the first time in 30 some years uh, where the women have been stalwarts and been there uh, year over year and both at the Olympics and at uh, the World Cup. So we do have really successful women's teams who really haven't both got funding from the government at the same level nor from a private sector. Uh, But it does seem from this start right off the bat we have uh, investments from CIBC and Air Canada and I saw Justin Trudeau tweeting about this yesterday so perhaps more support's coming. Um, With uh, eight teams total four east four west (laughs) my fingers are crossed for Hamilton. (laughs) Yeah I think Hamilton would be a great location I mean uh, you know it's going to be about facilities it's going to be about accessible facilities for these women to play in Uh, but I also think it has to be about good home crowds and a thriving soccer culture. Uh, the launch year is 2025. Um, that sounds like it's enough time to really get this off the ground, get the sponsorship that they need. Yeah, it's a great runway. I think capturing the excitement around soccer right now while while there's a World Cup on and a coming World Cup in June for the women. Uh, I, and I think giving themselves that that head uh, time that, that, you know, we have two years to sort of get the, the entire league together um, and the first teams on the pitch. So I think it's a good announcement. I think the time frame really seems to be reasonable. Uh, they're not trying to do it too fast and it gives them the time to do it right. We're speaking with Dr. Ann Pegararo, the co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. I also think this is so important for young girls who are in this sport and others. Um, this gives them something to aim for and, and really elevates the entire sport. I think it does. You know, I think that uh, for a long time, we know that um, that girls drop out of a rate of sport at a much higher rate. Uh, Canadian Women in Sport just released their most recent rally report that shows that the numbers are declining again. And part of that has to do with with seeing a pathway right now. We can see a clear pathway to be able to stay in a sport and play in your own country. And whether or not every every uh, young girl gets there is is not the point. The point is they're going to stay in sport and, and strive for that. And there's so many extra benefits by having sport uh, in your in your childhood. We only have about a minute left, but I do have to mention that there are some concerns because of what happened with the Canadian Women's Hockey League, which uh, ceased after which ceased rather about three years ago. Yeah, I think that was a different model. Um, I think that uh, both Diana and Christine have put together a good team to start with. Uh, and I think they have two key partners on uh, right away. So I'm hoping that this model will be different. Uh, you know, we've learned a lot from that model from the Women's Hockey League, and hopefully we're taking those learnings into building this league um, to be solid and successful from the start. Uh, Dr. Pegararo, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It is such a great and positive announcement. Can't wait to see soccer played in either Hamilton or London uh, in the next couple of years. And pro soccer for women. It's an awesome announcement. It is. Thanks for having me on again. Dr. Ann Pegararo is co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.